Good evening. Uh, it really is my pleasure to be giving the Vivian T. Thomas Lecture for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Uh, I'm Quinn Capers IV. I'm very, very happy to be with you here. Uh, so let's get started. I'd like to start with this piece of artwork. It's very important to me, uh, very important for a couple of reasons. One uh, is that it is uh, my daughter's creation. So I was very proud, as was she, that it graced the cover of the Academic Medicine Journal in December. Uh, go check it out if you get a chance. Now, what this art shows, is shows a black physician being crushed by two external forces. And when this physician looks to his right, he sees a virus that is disproportionately killing people in his community. And when he looks to his left, he sees racism here evidenced by police brutality that is disproportionately killing people in his community. Yet this look of determination on his face says that he will not be crushed by either of those. Now in the background, cities are burning um, as the protests uh, happened in all of our major cities in the last six months. This is what it has been like to be a black physician uh, in the last six to 12 months. I wanted to start there because we're talking about racism and racial bias in medicine I wanted you to feel this. This is what it feels like. Now, I will say one humorous thing about this picture before I leave. My daughter showed it to me. I was very grateful and said, oh, and that's me. She said, no, it's not you, daddy. Everything's not about you. Uh, but when I look at him, I see the bald head, the bushy eyebrows, uh, the wrinkly brow. And um, um, uh, although I didn't want this to get out of the public, when I wear scrubs, sometimes I wear black socks, uh, even though that's not uh, fashion forward. Uh, but she says it's not me, so okay, we'll, we'll go with that. But this is a picture of racism that we fight as physicians. So I want this to be an evidence-based talk, uh, and I want to show you some evidence, evidence uh, that we certainly lack diversity in medicine, uh, evidence that racism and racial bias play a role in that lack of diversity, uh, evidence that that lack of diversity harms our patients, uh, that that uh, that diversity in medicine will benefit our patients. If I can convince you that a lack of diversity is harmful, then I should also be able to show you that if we have diversity, our patients will benefit. There are barriers uh, to enhancing diversity. So what are they? Why are we not there yet? And then finally, uh, so we can leave uh, on a positive note, what are some strategies to enhance diversity? So lack of diversity in medicine. Uh, it really is self-evident at this point. This is data from the Association of American Medical Colleges showing you the self-identified race of medical school matriculants over an almost 40 year time period. What this shows is that of the almost 16,000 medical school matriculants, uh, the group that is by far uh, in the highest abundance are those self-identified as white. Uh, and there has been a dip. So of the 16,000 medical students, uh, whites have gone from 14,000 of those 16,000 to only 11,000 of those 16,000. There's only been one group, uh, one group uh, that has seen an increase in that almost 40 year time period. And those are self-identified Asians. Blacks and Hispanics in red and blue are right here. And if you can see an appreciable increase in the number of black matriculants in medical school over this 40 year period, let me know because I can't see it. And then American Indians and Alaskan Natives in gray, I have a hard time distinguishing the gray line from the zero line. So clearly, without room for debate, we have a diversity problem in medicine. So 
That doesn't mean that racism or racial bias plays any role in that lack of diversity. What is the evidence? Uh, well, here is exhibit A. This is a letter from the admissions committee at Emory University in 1959 to a medical school applicant. Uh, and it says that acknowledgement is made of your letter. I'm sorry I must write you that we are not allowed to consider for admission a member of the Negro race. Now, this is Emory University, which is my alma mater for my residency and fellowship programs. So I'm not throwing them under the bus. In fact, there was a state law in Georgia prohibiting Emory from accepting black people. So even if Emory wanted to, uh, they would have had to send this letter. So when you had entire states outlawing it, making it illegal uh, to admit uh, black people on the basis of their race, that is uh, the quintessential example of racism impairing diversity in medicine. So that's explicit racial bias. What about implicit racial bias? Just as a brief uh, primer on that, we all know what implicit bias is. It is uh, this concept that we have unconscious associations with different demographics, and they're based on repeated images that we see. For example, if every time I see a nun, that nun is uh, shown to me doing something kind, warm-hearted, and compassionate, after enough times, my unconscious brain makes that connection, that none equals kindness. At the same time, if often when I see a young black man in a hoodie, he's being shown to me as committing a crime, uh, in a fight of some sort, being taken away in handcuffs, playing the bad guy in the movie, et cetera, my unconscious brain will make that connection, that a young black man in a hoodie equals danger. But the important thing about implicit bias, although these associations are outside of our conscious awareness, they can influence our behavior. So let's take the same example. Let's say these patients come to me complaining of shortness of breath. For the nun, because of my unconscious association, it is possible that I'm gonna leave no stone unturned to find out why she's short of breath. I mean, I'm gonna order x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, PFTs. I will stop at nothing to find out what is bothering this woman so that I can help her. On the other hand, young black man in a hoodie comes to me complaining of shortness of breath. It is possible that based on my unconscious associations, I do a very cursory examination of his lungs, say, you know, it sounds uh, okay to me. Uh, I don't really think you need a chest x-ray. Uh, why don't you come back in two weeks if you're not better? And I leave those encounters truly believing that I have treated everyone fairly. Let me give you another example, which is relevant in the times in which we live. Let's say I'm a police officer and I'm called to the scene of a crime. I'm told there's a disturbance. And when I arrive, I see a nun. Well, the first thing I do when I get there is smile. Uh, Hi there, sister. What seems to be the problem? How can I help? On the other hand, uh, if I arrive and I see a young black man in a hoodie, uh, first of all, I'm not smiling. Uh, second of all, uh, uh, if I'm talking to him, uh, it's not in soft tones, but I'm uh, yelling orders at him, barking at him, really, and I just might approach him with my hand on my firearm or on my taser because of that unconscious association. Let Yet uh, uh, that night, uh, at dinner with my family, when my family asked me how was my day, I say I had a great day treating everybody fairly. Because in my mind, I really do think I treated everybody fairly. That is how insidious this implicit bias can be. 
Now, what about us, physicians? Are we immune? Uh, no. This study by Janice Sabin and colleagues in 2009 showed that physicians who take the implicit association test, that is the web-based computer test that uncovers your hidden biases, that seven out of 10 physicians who have taken that test have a result called implicit white race preference, which means when I see a white person, my unconscious mind automatically associates that white face with good. And when I see a black person, my unconscious mind automatically associates that black face with bad things like danger, violence, fear, misery, pain, et cetera. Physicians are no different from laypersons and having this unconscious white race preference. So um, what does that have to do with admissions? Well, we studied this uh, when I was at the Ohio State University in 2012, when we had our large admissions committee, 140 people all take several implicit association tests. Here's the raw data from the uh, white black race IAT. And what it shows is that 52% of the women on our admissions committee and 64% of the men have a result uh, that uh, is defined as implicit white race preference, which means unconsciously white face, good, black face, bad. And on top of that, uh, the smaller bars at 10%, that is explicit white race preference. So yes, that's right, 10% of the women and 10% of the men on our admissions committee uh, answered the question on the test this way, I prefer white people to black people. So it's conscious, uh, confessed, explicit white race preference uh, up to 10%. Uh, here's why that's important. What we're concerned about is this young man interviewing for medical school, he's done all the right things. He's got on uh, a nice suit. He's uh, got a firm handshake, a smile, making eye contact, all the things that you would tell your mentee to do. And this uh, interviewer who really wants to do the right thing and is consciously saying, uh, I'm going to look at all the objective uh, evidence and I'm going to make a good, fair and just decision. But that's his conscious mind. But if his unconscious mind looks at this young man and associates him with a violent image, then I wonder uh, uh, how that impacts how he grades this young man's essay or how he grades this young man's interview questions. Those are the things that keep admissions deans up at night. But there's good news. We found uh, that when we went right into, after uncovering our results, when we went right into an implicit bias mitigation workshop with our admissions committee, the very next class admitted to the Ohio State University College of Medicine was the most diverse class in the history of our medical school. So the good news is we can overcome uh, implicit bias. It just takes awareness and practice. So, we lack diversity in medicine. Explicit racism and implicit racial bias play a role in that lack of diversity. So uh, how does that impact our patients? So let me share with you evidence that the lack of diversity can harm our patients. Uh, and here's some evidence that we uh, are troubled by in my specialty cardiology. AICDs, automatic implantable cardiorotor defibrillators actually save lives. They prevent sudden cardiac death in patients with severe heart failure and severe left ventricular ejection fraction. And it really is timely for me to be talking about this because uh, as I hope you all know, uh, the first implantation uh, of an AICD was done by a thoracic surgeon, uh, a black man, uh, Dr. Levi Watkins. 
So uh, I think about that every time I round on a patient that has an AICD. So here are two patients. Look them in the eyes, get to know them. They both have severe refractory heart failure and an ejection fraction less than 35%. Who gets the AICD? What does the data show? And in this study in 2003, 6,000 Medicare patients who had survived a cardiac arrest, so you're lucky if you survive a cardiac arrest, um, uh, had defibrillators, at least some of them did. The odds ratio for black cardiac arrest survivors compared to white cardiac arrest survivors to get an IACD was 0.5. Said differently, with the same diagnosis, the blacks were only half as likely to receive a defibrillator. Now that was in 2003, and 2003 was uh, a long time ago, but uh, 2016 was not so long ago. And in this national uh, sample, looking at inpatient records of 21,000 patients who were eligible to receive a defibrillator to prevent the risk of their heart stopping, Blacks and Hispanics were less likely than whites to even be told that there is something called a defibrillator that you should consider. How about acute coronary syndromes? Who gets timely cardiac intervention? We know that the faster in a heart attack patient, the sooner that we do the heart cath and look at the angiogram and see the blocked artery and open it, the more heart muscle we salvage, the more likely we are to save that patient's life. What does the data tell us? This is uh, an important study. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie. In 1999, this study was done with actors, actors playing the role of patients having severe chest discomfort. All of these actors read an identical script where they said, it feels like a ton of bricks sitting on my chest. I couldn't breathe, my arm was numb, and I broke out in a drenching sweat. Physicians saw one of these actors, saw one of these videos, and they were asked questions. And one of the questions was, would you refer this patient for a cardiac catheterization procedure. The white males were far and away most likely to be referred for a heart cath. The white females were second most likely. The black males were third most likely and bringing up the rear, the least likely to be referred for a heart cath despite an identical history were the black women. Now 1999 was a long time ago, but 2019, was not so long ago. And in this study, this is not a simulation now, this is real life. Uh, the investigators, uh, of which I was one, we looked at an inpatient database of 4 million patients in the United States who presented with an acute coronary syndrome. And we wanted to see who gets their heart cath early, which we defined as within 24 hours of admission versus late, which we defined as more than three days, 72 hours after being admitted with a heart attack we found independent predictors of late versus early coronary angiography to be being a woman, being black, being admitted on the weekend and not having insurance. So said differently, being a woman was just like not having insurance. Being black was just like not having insurance. And when you combine the two, being black and a woman, you were least likely of all to have timely cardiac catheterization. So uh, if we go back here to 1999, the least likely of all patients with heart attack symptoms to get a heart cath were the black women. And then when we come here to 2019, it's the same thing. How about critical lower extremity ischemia? 
Who gets revascularized and who gets an amputation? What does the data show us? This study in 1995 looked at Medicare patients over 19,000 and showed that compared to whites who present with critical lower extremity ischemia, blacks are more likely to undergo an amputation of a limb, while the whites are more likely to have a procedure to restore blood flow to the legs and preserve the limb. 1995, uh, again, was a long time ago, but uh, 2017, not so long ago, and in 2017, we still see this pattern that Blacks and Hispanics are more likely to have an amputation than whites. What I particularly like about the second study on this slide is that it was controlled for extent and severity of disease at presentation. Some people, and count me in this number, think that one significant and important driver of these racial healthcare disparities in cardiology is the lack of diversity in cardiology. Currently, while uh, Hispanics make up 17% uh, of uh, Americans filling out the census, they're only 5% of cardiologists. And while Blacks are 13%, not even 3% of cardiologists are Black. We must improve diversity in order to get ahead of these healthcare disparities. So that lack of diversity harms our patients what is the evidence? I need to be able to prove to you the opposite, that diversity will benefit our patients. Here's a very interesting study uh, uh, out of Oakland, California, published in 2018. Uh, and I really like this study. This study looked at um, the response of black male patients to get uh, preventive medicine interventions based on the race of their physician. So in preventive care clinics in Oakland, California, they studied the responses of black males when they saw either white, black, or Asian male physicians. At these clinics in this study, the patients were informed that what is available today is BMI measurement, blood pressure measurement, diabetes screening, cholesterol screening, both of those by finger stick, and a flu shot. Those black male patients saw either a white, black, or Asian physician. One of the first things they noticed was that there were significant differences in the progress notes written by these physicians. As you and I know, when we see a patient, we've got to document it. We've got to write a progress note. When they looked at the progress notes, they saw a pattern. They saw that the white and Asian physicians, their notes were short. And I mean short, short, succinct, and businesslike. Like they got to the point. Here are some examples. And I must tell you, uh, uh, I had a thought when I looked at these, but let's look at the progress notes written by the white and Asian physician. Weight loss. That's it, that is the entire progress note. TB test, that's another one. And anxiety, that is an entire progress note uh, in the patient's chart. Now I have to say that when I was an internal medicine resident, uh, I was a little envious of my colleagues in surgery, the surgery residents, uh, at the very brief notes they could get away with, right? I mean, you're surgeons, you know that. AFBSS, afebrile vital sign stable, that's all they had to write. As internal medicine, we had to write these long narrative essays. Uh, uh, so that bothered me. But these are the notes written by white and Asian physicians upon seeing black patients. When they looked at the notes written by the black doctors, they found some important differences. So here are some examples of notes written by the black doctors. 
needs food, shelter, clothing, and a job. Flu shot makes you sick. He's quoting the patient here, but he got one anyway. Subject yelled at me, uh, but then agreed to get the flu shot because I recommended it. Uh, made patient laugh. And do you feel that? Do you feel a difference between the two? With the black physicians, there seems to be more of a connection. There seems to be more active listening. There seems to be uh, a philosophy of taking into account the patient's environment and the impact that social determinants of health will have on uh, this patient's health and their prescriptions for the patient. So it is possible that that difference is what led to the ultimate outcomes, which is that the black patients were more likely to consent to diabetes screening, cholesterol screening, and a flu shot if it was recommended by a black doctor versus the white or Asian doctor. And when it comes to vaccinations, we know now that the COVID-19 vaccine is rolling out. Uh, what if black patients are more likely to get the COVID vaccine if recommended by a black doctor. This can tell you that the lack of diversity uh, not only can harm our patients, but more diversity could actually enhance patient care. Here's another example that's right in your wheelhouse because it's about open heart surgery. In this recent study, Saha and colleagues uh, flipped the uh, simulated patient and had simulated doctors. So these are actors playing the role of heart surgeons. Um, and as you can see, there are different genders and different races. This time, the viewers of the video were actual heart patients. In the video, the doctor says, I've reviewed uh, your studies and I recommend open heart bypass surgery. The, uh, the patients filled out a survey that says whether or not they would be willing to have the surgery. And to cut to the chase, the results showed that the black patients were more likely to agree to open heart surgery if recommended by a black versus a white physician. Now these actors all read an identical script. So they're saying the same words. So what that means is that more black doctors could lead to more black patients getting flu shots, getting their cholesterol and blood sugar screen and getting open heart surgery. More diversity will benefit our patients. So why aren't we there yet? We've been talking about this for a long time. The AAMC, the AMA, uh, all major medical organizations have been saying we want to diversify medicine for at least 50 years, and we're still not there. What are some of the barriers? Well, I can tell you some of the barriers are us right up here. We are in our own way because some of us just, we don't believe it. We don't believe that diversity will enhance quality. I hope Dr. Backus uh, uh, is in the audience uh, and her uh, co-authors because I really uh, want to give them a positive shout out for this paper uh, published by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Diversity Committee uh, to survey your membership and uh, see what are some of the ideas and perceptions about diversity was the purpose of this survey that had a response rate of 9%. There were 481 respondents. What I found to be most earth shattering were the open-ended comments. And I'll share some of those with you here. These were some of the open-ended comments on this survey about diversity from STS members. Somebody said, white males are currently being discriminated against in admission to college, medical school, and residency programs. CT surgery should be a meritocracy. 
Another person said, I don't believe barriers exist. This myth of the necessity of diversity and inclusion is political correctness on steroids. We need to worry about turning out well-trained residents. Someone else said the STS doesn't need to address diversity and frankly, this shouldn't even be on the radar of things to be done. Uh, and someone else said, what barriers? There are no barriers, none of the above are important. Thank you, Dr. Backus and colleagues and STS for providing us this information, which is very powerful. But I don't wanna just uh, have fun with my thoracic surgery colleagues uh, uh, because uh, in cardiology, we have a similar problem. I sit on the American College of Cardiology's diversity task force. We don't have uh, much diversity in our specialty as I've shown you. And we wanna do something about that. And that is the charge of our task force. So one of the first things that my work group wanted to do was to survey the gatekeepers, the cardiology fellowship program directors. You don't get to be a cardiology fellow until you get past that cardiology fellowship program director and their selection committees. So we had 110 respondents, which uh, correlated to 57% of cardiology fellowship programs in the country. And you see there the breakdown. One of the first questions we asked was this, diversity is a driver of excellence in healthcare. In other words, the more diversity represented amongst your providers, the better the care delivered. Do you believe this? That was the question. Well, uh, almost 70% said yes. 5% said no, I don't believe that. And 25% said maybe. So that's 30%, three out of 10 of our program director respondents aren't sure if diversity enhances quality. The next question we ask is, if you believe it enhances quality, quote your sources. Can you quote one or two references that support this statement? And 76% could not. So while you and I know that there is a plethora of papers and studies showing that diversity enhances quality, our gatekeepers in cardiology, the cardiology fellowship program directors are not familiar with this data. Uh, we also asked, uh, what are the top criteria, the top three things on your mind when you're making your rank list? And we gave 10 characteristics and we said rank them according to those that are in your top three. The top vote getter was clinical skills and acumen. I don't have a problem with that. I like that. Next though, the next highest vote getter was ability to fit in, ability to fit in well. And I just wonder if that means the same thing to you as it does to me. And now just let your eyes go all the way down to the bottom and you'll see coming in last place was diversity or the ability to enhance the cultural competency of your program. So it is literally and figuratively the last thing on the minds of our program directors when they're making their rank list. So uh, the culprits of this lack of diversity in medicine because it's time now for us to stop talking about it and actually do something about it, and we can do that. So what are the culprits of this lack of diversity in medicine? Some of it we've talked about, the supply chain, uh, from high school through medical school application, underrepresented minorities are in short supply, there's a lack of visible role models, and structural racism plays a major role, and not just structural racism, but implicit bias on the part of gatekeepers. Structural racism is different in that uh, there's not one person you can point to. You can't say that's Joe's fault or that's Mary's fault. Uh, it is in the structure. 
An example of structural racism would be when uh, an elite Ivy League college has a, a legacy program where they say, we're gonna give extra credit to applicants whose parents or grandparents attended this college. If that college at one time had racially exclusive policies, no blacks allowed, no women allowed, no Mexicans allowed, no Jews allowed, then of course the alumni are going to be largely white males. And then if you say in your admission process, we're gonna give credit to you if your parent or grandparent went here, you're extending that racism. You're extending the long shadow of racism. That's an example of structural racism that is hurting the supply chain. Gatekeepers, uh, admissions committee members, selection committees for GME programs, search committees for leadership positions in academic medicine. Structural racism and again, racial bias amongst program directors, there tends to be an indifference to recruiting. And as I showed you, little importance placed on diversity when making the rank list. And then finally, the culture in academic medicine, uh, once again, structural racism and racial bias, which we can get over. I wanna leave you with that hope. We can get over that. And importantly, inertia. Uh, I've been from coast to coast speaking to programs about how to enhance diversity. And when I sense that a strategy is anti-diversity, is hampering their effects at diversifying the program, and I ask, why are you doing it this way? Um, so very often, the answer that I hear is, we've always done it that way. The person who was in this position before me did it that way. And the person who was in this position before them did it that way. And so we've just continued to do it that way. We've got to break out of the inertia uh, in order to make changes that will enhance diversity. So uh, those are some barriers. Now, let's end on a positive note, shall we? Uh, so what are some strategies? What are some best practices uh, to help us enhance diversity? Um, here is uh, what I like to call the ABCs of diversity enhancement. We've got to reach back. When I say back, I mean way back uh, in the pipeline. Mentor relentlessly every chance you get. Be visible. We have to extend uh, uh, ourselves by being visible, not only every place that we can be in person, but via social media. Uh, when the AAMC published Altering the Course, the major publication several years ago that showed that the number of black men applying to medical school is low and hasn't changed in almost 40 years, uh, one of the culprits suggested in that publication was the lack of visible role models. So let's be visible. Encourage your mentees to enter academic medicine. Now, I'll tell you, my first eight years as an attending physician was in private practice. I love private practice, had a ball. But when we're in academic medicine, there's more of an opportunity to mentor uh, and to advise those who are around us. Confront implicit bias. Be courageous about confronting implicit bias. The good news is while we all have implicit biases, they're actually very easy to overcome and override, but it takes awareness and it takes practice. Engage the gatekeepers. And from kindergarten to medical school, there are a lot of gatekeepers, right? The, uh, that uh, high school counselor uh, who decides who gets the information about summer programs and who doesn't, that person is a gatekeeper. At the elementary school level, uh, the teachers who decide which children are recommended to the gifted and talented program 
and which ones are not. Those are gatekeepers. The college admissions committee, gatekeepers. The medical school admissions committee, gatekeepers. We need to engage with gatekeepers. They are us and we are them. Number seven, what if, what if we took that diversity slash ability to enhance cultural competency of the program and elevated it uh, to be a top three consideration? What would that look like? And then finally, just do it, but don't keep your successes to yourself. Talk about it at meetings like this, write about it so that others can learn about what you're doing. This graphic uh, is, uh, is useful to me because as we think about enhancing diversity, we need to think about three major strategies. The deep pipeline, we've got to reach back and expose young people to medicine and to our careers just to let them know that you can do this too. And then the more immediate pipeline, we've got to uh, actively engage with our minorities and our women who are right around the corner, who are in college and who are in medical school. Let them shadow us. Let's give them some coaching, mentoring and advising. And then the end game, this is where I've been working uh, as an admissions dean for 10 years, as an interventional cardiology fellowship program director for two years, the end game, the actual selection process to make it mission-based, make it holistic, uh, and squeeze every drop of bias that you can out of it. We can do this. All three of these are important. If you get all of the bias out of your selection processes, but we just don't have uh, uh, any minorities or very few in the pipeline, then that by itself is not good enough. But on the other hand, if you really work to shore up the pipeline so that we have many underrepresented minorities uh, in the pipeline, but then they come smack dab into a biased selection process, then that also is no good. So we all need to find which of these do we do best? Maybe your talent is working with youngsters. Maybe your talent is having a college pre-med students shadow you. Uh, maybe you work uh, as a gatekeeper, but we all need to engage and do this work. So let's show you some examples. Let's talk about the deep pipeline. And I told you, I mean, the very deep pipeline. Uh, this is a picture uh, of the white coat ceremony of kindergartners in the Ohio State University, Columbus City Schools Health Sciences Academy. These youngsters will be exposed to medicine from kindergarten through the 12th grade with, of course, the purpose being to encourage them to go into careers uh, in the health professions field. These are the kinds of things that we can all be doing, not necessarily such a big gesture as uh, creating a health sciences academy, but simply being visible and working with youngsters. Remember, we've got to get them in the pipeline. Um, growing your own garden. And this is a wonderful example of how this can work. Uh, what you see here are uh, fourth graders, fourth graders who attended uh, one of our heart school programs on a Saturday where they dissected hearts uh, and they were proctored in those heart dissections. Uh, by our minority medical students. Look at that young man. He's a fourth grader and uh, he's lost his certificate. It makes you think that he's not interested in what's going on there. Uh, but I know exactly what's going on there. And if I remember being in the fourth grade, there were fewer things that were more important to me as a fourth grader than looking cool in front of my friends. Uh, and that's what he's trying to do, which would lead you to think he's not interested uh, in uh, what's going on in the class, but that's not true because here he is again as a pre-med student at Northwestern. And here he is again uh, as a second year medical student uh, in my clinic, uh, my last clinic day uh, at Ohio State University. So he was mentored from fourth grade to medical school. 
And this is what we all need to be doing. Now, as I like to jokingly say, I'm not sure how many fourth grade to medical school cycles I have left in me, but let's all do this. When was the last time you sat down with a third grader or a fourth grader that wasn't your own? I know you're doing it with your own, but when was the last time you sat down with a fourth grader and said, you know, I think you can be a doctor. I believe in you. It can make a world of difference. And this is what we all need to be doing. Uh, we need to, uh, once we get them in the pipeline, be sure they're on track. Uh, Dr. Bob Higgins, uh, when he was at Ohio State, and when I was at Ohio State, we worked to form this quarterly Black Male Mentoring Roundtable, where we get the Black male faculty and medical students together for a meal, for socialization, for inspiring them, um, and to let them know this is what it takes to be successful. This picture obviously is pre-pandemic. Uh, here's uh, our latest meeting um, that we do it on Zoom. But here's what I want you to think about for a minute. Imagine you are a first year medical student, a black male, an endangered species in medicine, really. Uh, and maybe you're wrestling with the imposter syndrome. Maybe you're the first in your family to go to college, certainly the first to go to medical school. And you have some doubts about whether or not you can do it. And then you get on this Zoom call and you see smiling at you, encouraging you, the president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and the first black chair of anything at Johns Hopkins University, Dr. Bob Higgins, or uh, Bay Area trauma surgeon, Dr. Andre Campbell, who's on MSNBC every other week, or the national president of the National Medical Association, or the vice dean of a medical school, or the chief of gastroenterology, or an NIH funded liver transplant surgeon. You see these people smiling at you saying, yes, you can do it. Imagine how uplifting that is. We can reproduce this at every medical school in the country. Uh, social media to extend our reach. In 2017, a group of black male physicians started this Twitter hashtag campaign, Black Men in Medicine, to flood social media with images of black male physicians, to inspire youngsters, and to change the nation's unconscious bias about black men. If you're not on Twitter, we're encouraging you to get on Twitter, follow this hashtag Black Men in Medicine and tweet out some images to encourage people uh, to think about going into medicine. The Mentoring Cascade. Um, and uh, as of 2007, uh, even though the Cardiology Fellowship at Ohio State University started in the 1950s, as of 2007, Ohio State had not trained a single African-American cardiology fellow. Uh, we knew that that was a problem. Uh, and then when I was hired, we decided to work on it right away. These are the first two black cardiology fellows at the Ohio State University. Uh, keep your eye on Dr. Sakima Smith there because here he is now proctoring other students at our black male mentoring roundtable. And this is him in his lab. A lot of excellent clinical cardiology research going on at Ohio State University, but there's only one faculty member that has an NIH funded basic science research lab and that's Dr. Sakima Smith, who you see here. So I mentored him, and now he mentors them, and we call that the mentoring cascade. Um, implicit bias. We need to be courageous when we confront it, and this is one of our latest papers, where we put it together as a how-to, how to operationalize implicit bias mitigation. Um, and the last uh, nugget of uh, strategy we have here, number five, is shown up close here. We have put together an implicit bias reduction cheat sheet for interview days so that this admissions committee member, in addition to reviewing the credentials of the applicant, actually is reviewing these implicit bias reduction strategies 
so that they are fresh in his mind. We call that the implicit bias reduction cheat sheet, and we found that that is actually helpful. What if we made the ability to enhance diversity or the cultural competency of the program, what if we made that a top priority when ranking our candidates? Well, uh, I can tell you that for four years, that is exactly what we've been doing uh, with the Interventional Cardiology Fellowship at The Ohio State University. When Interventional Cardiology Fellowship applicants apply, they are actually rated on whether or not their letters of recommendation specifically cite cultural competence as a trait, on whether or not they've participated in community outreach activities from medical school through cardiology training, on whether or not they have been exposed in a meaningful way to different cultures, people in a culture other than their own, and whether or not they have uh, had experience treating patients in underserved and disadvantaged populations. This metric is given the same weight as scholarly activity, clinical excellence, and collegiality. Now, what would that look like if we all made this a part of our evaluation of candidates? It would look like this. For eight years in a row, uh, one of our, at least one of our interventional cardiology fellows at Ohio State University has been an underrepresented minority. This is what it looks like when you truly believe that diversity enhances quality. When you truly believe that diversity enhances quality, then you break out of the inertia and you put together tools that will allow you to enhance diversity and your patients will be the beneficiaries. In conclusion, the lack of diversity is due in part to racial bias and explicit racism. We can do better. This lack of diversity is harming our patients and enhancing diversity requires intentional action. It's not gonna happen by accident. You have to be intentional and that intention is fueled by belief. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Are you a part of the 30% that you're not so sure? Or are you part of the almost 70% uh, that uh, truly believes diversity enhances quality? I'm so very uh, proud uh, and grateful uh, to have been able to give the Vivian Thomas lecture. Here is a picture from when I visited Johns Hopkins and for me, the visit to Johns Hopkins was not complete until I made this pilgrimage, until somebody took me uh, to this photograph, to this portrait of the great Vivian Thomas. You know, here is a man who had brilliance in him, brilliance in his brain and uh, uh, hands that uh, no one could believe. Uh, I've watched the movie, Something the Lord Made many times and I'm saddened when I see that part in the movie, when he lost his savings and couldn't go to college. Uh, and I'm saddened when he uh, approached uh, uh, the uh, pre-med uh, college curriculum advisor at Morgan State asking if he could get credit for life experiences and they had to say no. Because we all know that a Dr. Vivian Thomas would have been an outstanding cardiac surgeon that would have done much, much more than he was able to do, which already put an imprint on cardiac surgery. So that you would ask me to give this lecture in honor of such a great man, such a great black man in medicine, 
uh, truly humbles me. Thank you very much.